Let's turn to 1 Timothy 4 today to begin. 1 Timothy 4, Paul, as a, in a sense, a spiritual father to Timothy, uh, interacted with him on an especially intimate level as he was striving to give him uh, the, the, the you can do this uh, speech in encouraging him in, in what God had done through him and, and what God would continue to do him as he went forward in his ministry in the service of the people of God. He makes a statement here, uh, one that many of us are, 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 with which many of us are quite familiar, but let's, let's read it. 1 Timothy 4, verse 12, he says, Let no one despise your youth, or as, uh, scripture, as the margin renders, let no one uh, look down on your youthfulness. Now, I, I believe that uh, God's, God's people, those who are truly God's people, as, as they uh, hear God's word preached and taught and, and interact with, with God's people who are, who are younger, uh, truly have an, an open and an attentive ear to, to hear God's truth. And it doesn't matter if a person is a little younger, a little older. Uh, it, but one of the things that as we, as we look at a passage like this, when these traits, as he mentions next, let's look at these uh, traits. Let's, let no one despise your youth. But he says to Timothy, but be an example to the believers, those that, he's, that Timothy's serving. Be an example in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. I think of the younger people with whom we work here in the congregation. It is inspiring to see that, to see people that exhibit those kinds of characteristics. Uh, and, and then even in the, in the state of being a, a, a young, younger minister to see that, uh, Paul says the tenden- in a sense the tendency is for that not to happen as that person is exhibiting these kinds of traits. Now, we're going to have issues in the church. We have people with different mindsets and different approaches towards things uh, spiritually, and they may be in this spiritual state to where they look at anybody younger than, than they are as, as somebody that's not, uh, well, what are they up there saying this or that? I mean, there are going to be those kinds of people, but by and large, the, the church, uh, those of us who are called, chosen, and, and striving to be faithful as we're going forward, we, we are ready to hear the truth. We're ready to focus on the truth. We're ready to study the truth and, and hear it expounded. Uh, no matter what the age of, of the individual, if the individual's in, in his mid-20s or, or, or in his late 90s uh, as, as that person covers the truth. He says next now, let's look... Uh, at verse 13, he says to Timothy, he says, he says, till I come, till I, Paul, come again to, uh, to, see, to see you and, and, and be there at the, at, the, at the location where you're serving. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to building up, to encouraging, exhorting, uh, and to doctrine. I want to focus on this first passage today. Give attention to reading. Is he talking there about public reading? Public reading of the scriptures during, during a service, during a, a worship service, during a holy convocation? Or is he talking about uh, 
Timothy's own life. You know, Timothy, you need to spend time grounded in God's Word. You need to spend time with your nose uh, in the texts, reading and, and thinking on these things deeply. You know, commentaries differ on that. Uh, some, some talk about, well, it would seem obvious that it, that it has to be on a, on a private level, uh, that he's got to, as a minister of God, as, as the, they were saying that the ministers back in Acts 6, they, they, were, they were spending time doing all the kinds of things that they had to do to serve people. We need some deacons to be able to serve uh, because uh, the, the, the people who are in the ministry who need to be rooted in God's word are, are serving tables. Uh, so, you know, is, is, he talking, is he talking about that? I, I think there's a case to be made that that is, that is the case, that he needed, uh, as, a, as a servant of God, who would be expounding the word of God, to be rooted and grounded and, and, and totally delving into the word of God. But I think there's also a case to be made for public reading. How, why would we say that, uh, that, that he may also be referencing that as we think about messages that, that are given? Well, think of Christ's first time that he got up and began teaching. He was, he was there at the synagogue. It was, was Luke 4, I think, that talks about that. He stood up and he read that passage in Isaiah. He, he gave attention to reading. He, he talked about uh, the Word of God, he read the Word of God, and then he sat down, but then he began to explain and teach. Uh, there, there is a, a, a history of, in, in the worship services, uh, way back in ancient Israel, and then also in the synagogues uh, at, at the time, of getting together as God's people and, and having uh, the Word being read. Let's look at a, a, a passage Back in Nehemiah, some of you are ahead of me on this. We know that that Timothy would have would have diligently studied the scriptures. Second Timothy three fifteen talks about that. He says that from childhood, Timothy, you have known the holy scriptures. You knew them from from childhood. Were they taught taught to him? Was did he commit? huge chunks of scripture to, to memory. I, I would think that's probably a, a likely situation. His mother, it speaks of his mother and his grandmother that, that would have raised him in a way and taught him the scriptures. But it says that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you, Timothy, wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, we see in, in ancient times, uh, the, the, the situation of what was going on in Nehemiah's time. Nehemiah came in around what was the mid-440s B.C. Uh, prior to that, mid, uh, let's see, 457, 458 or so uh, B.C., Ezra had come back. Uh, you know, they had come back, the, the, uh, the southern kingdom. Many had been able to return some 70 years after the uh, they were taken into captivity in the 580s, so 515. Uh, things fall into disrepair. Things are not going well. Ezra gets involved, the scribe, in the late 450s. Nehemiah comes in and, and does his part. And here they are as the people of God assembled on a holy day. In fact, the Feast of Trumpets, the first day of the seventh month. And this, this statement is read. Uh, this, this statement is recorded for us as in verse 4 you've got Ezra the scribe that's there. He's, uh, they're, they're reading. Let's look at verse 2. So Ezra the priest 
Nehemiah 8, verse 2, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men on, on the Feast of Trumpets. It's, it's uh, bringing the book of the law, as, as verse 1 says, uh, the book of the law of Moses, which the Eternal had commanded Israel. Ezra brings this uh, before the assembly of men and women on the first day of the seventh month, the high day, Feast of Trumpets. And he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. It was a high day and they were reading from God's word. Uh, they were given, giving attention uh, to reading in this respect, respect in a very public situation. Well, who would, have had, who would have even had access to the Word of God back then? You know, it, it wouldn't have been accessible except to the ones who had that, which would have been uh, the Levites, the, the priesthood that are there serving. So they wanted to create a situation where God's Word would be taught. Notice uh, as it drops down to verse, uh, verse 7, you've got... Ezra blessing the Lord, verse 6, people saying amen, amen, they're standing and then they're bowing and worshiping their, with their faces to the ground. And then we've got these other Levites that are involved, verse 7, and notice what it says at, at the end of verse 7. They helped the people to understand the law and the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God and they gave the sense and help them to understand the reading. This was the, the, the studying of God's word, the reading of God's word in a, in a worship service and expounding that for them. Uh, it was a giving attention to reading in a public setting. We see that happening uh, as well in uh, the book of Acts. This is a, an interesting statement that they made at the conclusion of the, of the Jerusalem conference as they were talking about uh, do, the, do the, uh, the Gentiles, do they need to be circumcised? We need to, do they need to be circumcised uh, as in, in order to be a part of the, the church? And he makes this statement uh, as they're, they're looking at going forward. And, and some will take this statement and say, well, yeah, yeah, this is why God, God didn't have them do the law anymore. They didn't need to do the law because we only had just a few things they needed to do. That's all they said is, as we bring these Gentiles, as they're coming into the faith, and clearly God is calling them. So all we need to do now is just make sure they do a couple of things. Uh, that's, that's the way uh, this uh, is often interpreted. Look at uh, verse 19. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble these Gentile, the, those from among the Gentiles uh, who are turning to God, but let's make sure they do three things. Let's make sure that we, uh, we write to them to tell them to abstain from things polluted by idols, to, uh, you know, of course, from sexual immorality and from things strangled uh, and, and from blood. Uh, so we've got actually four things there. And, and also to steer clear of blood. So, you know, that's, that's, all, that's all we need to make sure we do. And then we see the next verse. And this next verse speaks to an aspect of, of, of what I want to cover today. He says, For Moses, Moses has had throughout many generations, as, as they've gone down through time to where, you know, the, the synagogues that were there in that day, he said, Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city. Having, uh, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. What's he saying? What's he saying? He's saying 
they're coming into the faith. They're going to begin to be learning these things anyway as they're gathering together on the synagogue, in the synagogues on the Sabbath to hear God's word read and taught. It, it, they'll, they'll get that other information, but initially as we start working with them, with them let's, let's make sure that they, they, they recognize they need to turn from these things right away, and then we're going to begin teaching them the rest of the Word of God. Because God's Word's going to be read. It's going to be read, and it's going to be discussed, and it's going to be expounded, and the sense of that is going to be taught them as they grow in the faith. I'd like to read from a passage of Scripture today. I'd like to give attention to reading. A song of love, it's a song of love in God's word. That is, it's Christian living oriented. It is not a silly love song. I look around me and I see it isn't so. Everybody wants to fill the world with silly love songs. This is not a silly love song, a Paul McCartney silly love song. This is a love song with, with deep, deep meaning. As we... Uh, give attention to reading today. As I mentioned, it's got Christian living aspects to it. It's got prophecy aspects tied to it. It is doctrinally oriented, and yet at the same time, it causes us, as we give attention to this reading, to reflect, to step back and reflect on our future, on what's ahead for us, and our part in the kingdom of God into eternity. It talks about our identity and our purpose for existence. And it's a love song. The reason why I want to do this is because I don't want to lose my way in these bizarre times. And these times are getting more and more bizarre. And it's not just that, wow, the gas prices went up 20 cents uh, a gallon in, in two days. You know, it's more than that, isn't it? Even though that seems to have been the case in McKinney. Uh, it, 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 these are bizarre times, and things are changing very quickly. And, and I don't want to lose my way during these bizarre times. I don't want any of you to lose your way. The scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Are you and I giving attention to reading? Are we giving attention to reading in our lives, as Paul commanded Timothy? Or is that just for people that are, are ministers? serving the people of, of God. God knows that we, as his children, must give attention to reading. So let's give attention to reading today. Let's reflect. Let's project into the future. And as we finish and as we go to our homes, may we praise our Father and our brother through faith which is in Christ Jesus. We're going to look at a psalm a contemplation of the sons of Korah. Remember uh, recently, those of you that were here heard Mr. Jeremy Lawyer's message. I thought that was fascinating how he went through and, and touched on the, the fact that Korah, you know, you think of Korah and all the, re the rebellion of Korah and how that was uh, so uh, strictly and, and fiercely and immediately uh, dealt with uh, by God as, as they separated from, from Moses. And yet here are the sons uh, that, that uh, continued in the faith and served God's, God mightily. And they have uh, one of these psalms for us today. It's Psalm 45. Maybe, maybe you've studied that recently. I, I have a heading that I wrote in my margin uh, uh, listed as Jesus Christ and his bride. 
It had been a while since I had studied that, but I began looking at this passage this week, and uh, I also used a, a, a collection or a series of books by uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, called The Treasury of David. Do any of you have that? Do any of you have The Treasury of David? It's a three-volume series, uh, Dr. Dick. It is an incredible uh, writing of of the Psalms. If you ever want to really delve into the Psalms in detail, uh, this guy wrote back in the late 1800s, uh, and it's a little antiquated language, but the depth and the, the beauty of, of, of the descriptions as, as he goes through and talks about uh, these various Psalms really bring out a lot. So I'll be, I'll be touching on some of the things that, that he brought out here, but, but mainly we're just going to dive into this word. We're going to give attention to reading today in a, a Sabbath service, in this holy convocation uh, of God, for a purpose, for a purpose of, of, of reminding us how, how much God's word as we give attention to reading and dwell and reflect upon that, carries us forward and grounds us through the crazy times that we live, the challenges that we face, the health issues, the, the, the issues within families, the issues within society, and the things that we face, the stresses. In this case, I think the, the New King James Version, for those of you that have that, uh, uh, that you're reading today, I think it, it, it rightly lists uh, the, the heading as the glories of the Messiah and his bride. Spurgeon states of, of this psalm, there, this is no wedding song of earthly nuptials, but this is an, an epithalamium. Does anybody know what an epithalamium is? I do not. I did not. I know now. I know. Anyway, I, I, I had no idea. I couldn't even say it. Epithalamium. Epithalamium. I did it twice without messing up. I did not do that in Sherman. Epithalamium. Three times. Boom. I'm stopping. I'm stopping. Uh, so, an epith I'm going to do it four times. An epithalamium is a song or poem in honor of a bride and bridegroom. So, it's, it's this song that's written to a bride and bridegroom. We know the bride, don't we? We is the bride. We are the bride. We are here today, and we know the bridegroom. How do we know that it is this about whom this is being discussed? We'll see that later. But that's, that's what it is. It is a song about uh, the glory and, and the joy of, of this great groom that is looking forward to marrying his bride. As he says here, it's, it's, it's a wedding song of, uh, no wedding song of earthly nuptials, but a song or poem in honor of a bride and bridegroom for the heavenly bridegroom and the elect spouse. Let's look at verse 1. Uh, Psalm 45, verse 1. We're going to delve into these 17 verses today. He says here, it is a, a, a contemplation of the sons of Korah. It is a song of love. So we're going to, we're going to look at a love song here today. The, the psalmist, who is obviously writing under the, 
the, the direct inspiration and, and the words of God that are flowing through this psalmist here. He makes this statement. My heart is overflowing. It, there's a superabundance to where it's overflowing with a good theme. Uh, the authorized King James Version says a good matter. My heart, it, it's deep within this individual's heart. It's not just a head thing, but it is a head and heart to where he says, it, I'm overflowing with this good matter. I've got to talk about it. It's pouring out of me as I am considering everything that uh, I have been considering. Uh, Spurgeon says here, a good heart, a good heart will only be content with good thoughts. A good heart will only be content with good thoughts. This person uh, whose heart is is, is strong in the Lord, is, is contemplating these good thoughts, and it flows out of him. It's a Philippians 4.8 mindset of I, I, whatever things are good and honest and, and upright and all of those, those good things, the person is thinking about this. He's dwelling in that to the depth that it's, it's just flowing out. I have, I have to talk about this. I have to, to cover this as, as I'm deeply contemplating uh, what I'm, what I'm, uh, upon what I'm dwelling. He says this in, in, in the latter part of verse 1. I recite my composition concerning the king. Okay, this is the focus of the song. The focus of the song is concerning this king. This king, and, and in the New King James, it is, it is rightly capitalized, the king. I, uh, I recite my composition. This isn't just something that I've just, this just run off my uh, tongue in a, in a random thought. I, it's my composition uh, concerning the king, the focus of the entire song. So, I want to ask something here. Uh, those of us that, uh, that, that write, and I am not a writer, I know there are several out here that, that love poetry. There are several out here that, that love to write poetry, who, who enjoy writing poetry. There are, are those among us uh, in talking with, with brethren over the years, something that I had never done. I think I've shared with some of you this because some have found this very effective in their individual lives. They, they say that I get so scatterbrained with things that the only way that I, I really feel like I can focus sometimes is to set aside some time during the week to write down my prayer. And I thought, wow, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily stream of consciousness when I pray, but but things are coming out of my mouth pretty quickly, or at least my thoughts in my head as I'm, as I'm praying to God. But some say they, they, they like to step back, and it causes them to focus and think very carefully about the words that they are sharing with the eternal God uh, through Jesus Christ in their prayer. Uh, I don't know how many of you might, might do that, but... So some, some do that. How many of you, uh, let's do a hand raise on this. How many of you have uh, studied or, or gone about the business of studying a certain topic and thought, you know what, uh, not necessarily, well, this would include those of you who speak uh, and those of you who write for, for, the, uh, for various uh, publications, but, but how many of you, even just for the including those people, how many of you also have said, you know, in order to really get this down, I not only want to read and study what I'm, what I'm doing, but I want to write this down, and I want to put this in a, in a concise uh, 
paragraph or two of exactly what I'm understanding. How many of you have done, have done that? Uh, for those of us that have, uh, it's not something that I tend to do except when I've got to get a message together <laughs> to prepare to, to speak. But I've, had, I've written a few articles. Uh, what's, what's the result of that kind of exercise when we do that, those of you that have done that? It goes a little bit farther, doesn't it, than just, oh, uh, yeah, I read this today, and, and oh, that's, that's an interesting insight. It takes us to a much deeper level, doesn't it? Because we have thought about it, we've processed the thoughts, we've meditated on this or that, we've fit this together, and then, boom, we, we uh, take it down to this thing that I've just written, these two or three paragraphs. And then those who write poetry, that is a, a, an in about God's word and about that, that is an entirely different level because they're taking that and processing it all and then using the English language to take it down to insights and, and metaphors and, and, and in rhyme often at that level. And that, you know what I'm saying? It, it takes it to a deeper and deeper level to where the individual is, is actually overflowing with a good theme because he or she has dwelt in that in that world and thought about it deeply this this is the kind of thing that helps us not lose our way in bizarre times to be able to go into that level and think on that kind of level i'm not saying that we all have to be poets because I, I am not, but, but to, to think on that level and to process things and, and put them together in such a way. Now let's, let's continue in verse one. Notice what he says here though. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Uh, a ready writer. Uh, Margin mentions that as a skillful writer. So, but he, he's not writing, is he? he? He says, my tongue is the pen of a, of a ready writer. So, so what he's getting at here is, I have thought deeply about this. I've thought deeply about this king, this, this, this great being that, uh, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, that, that's going to do some amazing things. But I've thought about that, and it's, uh, it, it comes off my, off my lips as if I was a writer that had honed all of that down and thought about it deeply enough that this is what it is. This, this is what it is, and I have incredible clarity in that. I want to read, I, I left, my book in, left my book in Sherman, so my daughter sent a picture of it, my little quote that I was going to read. This is, this is Burnett at the best of technology. I, I'm, really, I'm really impressed. Well, I'm not because I couldn't have figured out how to send this to myself, uh, but Christy did. So I'm just able to pull it up and read it. I just want to read this, this one section from, from uh, Charles Spurgeon here. He says, my tongue is the pen of a ready writer, not so much for rapidity, for there, for there the tongue always has the preference, but, but for exactness for elaboration, for deliberation, and skillfulness of expression. Seldom are the excited utterances of the mouth equal in real weight, uh, in, in real weight and accuracy to the verba scripta uh, of a thoughtful, accomplished penman. But here, the writer, though filled with enthusiasm, speaks as correctly as a practice writer. His utterances, therefore, are no ephemeral sentences, but such as fall from men who sit down calmly to write for eternity. 
This, this is the word of God. This is what this individual did as God worked through that individual to breathe his words and what he wanted to be recorded for us for all eternity in this writing. And he gives this to us. This is, this is here for us, for you and me. It's here for us to give us uh, a sense of balance and understanding and depth as we go forward in our lives. Verse 1 is finished. Verse 2. Now, we're going to look at verses 2 through 9 as we begin to see the psalmist that addresses this king. And here is the king, the king Jesus Christ. He, he speaks of the king. He's, he's overflowing with this good matter because he's dwelt on the reality of, of this, this bridegroom that's coming, the, the bridegroom and, and who this being is. He says of the bridegroom, you are fairer than the sons of men. This, this individual is the husband to the church. He is beautiful in every way, this great being. It says here uh, in verse 2, continuing, grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Well, we know that God has blessed him forever. He sits at the right hand of God. He is in that position. And, but yet we, we, we think upon him uh, as, we, you know, as we begin our prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Uh, we, we think of, of God. We pray to God the Father. We think that God has uh, uh, blessed him, blessed you. You is capitalized there. Blessed Jesus Christ in that role. Jesus Christ plays that role for us now and we reflect upon the Godhead and their, their power and their, their deity and their might and, and the blessing that has come upon Jesus Christ. Verse 3, here's where we start getting into prophecy. Uh, gird or belt on, belt up. This is the individual that's speaking to Jesus Christ. It's speaking to the king. That's speaking to the bridegroom here. This is, this is the church talking to the bridegroom. Gird or belt on your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and with your majesty. And in your majesty, ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. The, the, it's, it's a longing for the individual. It's a longing for you and me to see the king of kings put forth his power to vindicate his cause. We deeply want that to happen. And, and the psalmist here is doing that. Bring your kingdom. Hasten the coming of, of God. Uh, hasten the day of the coming of God. Uh, the whole the day of God, as Second Peter talks about. We pray for that. We we look for that, and we we're asking uh, as we as we talk to God in prayer that that Christ in in God's time God will allow Christ to gird that sword, to belt up that sword, belt on that sword, and come and deliver in His might. Putting his sword ready for use. Jesus Christ is our champion. Father, send him. Send him in all his glory and his majesty. Bring him here. As the woman, the bride, the church betrothed to Christ, we yearn for his coming to us. We yearn for that marriage as a bride eagerly looks forward to her wedding. We want this king to come. Look at verse 4. And in your majesty, ride prosperously. The, the triumphant ride of this victory. We, we look forward to that time of, of him coming down and, and riding to victory. Why is he able to do that? Why is he able to, to, to ride to victory? Why is he able to, in his majesty, ride prosperously? 
because of several factors. Let's turn over to uh, Revelation 19. It says here, because of truth, humility, and righteousness. Because of truth, humility, and righteousness. We'll get back to uh, Psalm 45 here in just a second, but let's go to, to Revelation 19. We just can't cover a passage like this without going to Revelation 19. Revelation 19, verse 11. We know that this being is coming, and, and God wants us, the psalmist mentioned he's overflowing with this to talk about this. He wants us to be overflowing with this good matter. Come, Lord Jesus, come. I saw, verse 11, chapter 19, I saw heaven open, and behold, there's a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful. Jesus Christ is the faithful one. He was true. Everything about Jesus Christ, this king, is true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. This this being is coming in righteousness. He's coming in truth. He's the way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. The other factor, though, is this being who is awesome and mighty in, in power, the one who will belt on his sword up, upon his thigh, the great mighty one, this being is, is filled with humility. It's... it's it's hard to envision that, that a being could be, could be both, but this is the king that we serve. This is the groom to which the church will marry. Let's stop for a second. I'd like to, to talk about uh, this great king who is also the groom. Husbands, how are you doing? Those of us who are husbands out here, we've got a few in the audience. Uh, those of us who are husbands, uh, if our wives were to uh, talk about us, would they say that we, as we mirror Christ's life, that we are, as we lead in the family, are, are we men of truth? Are we men of humility? Are we men of righteousness? How do our wives view us? Those of us who uh, are looking forward to getting married, those of us who are engaged to be married. How, how does our fiancé uh, view us? What about our children? Do they see a man that leads the family that is, is filled with truth, that lives by the truth, uh, that, is, that walks in humility, and, and that, that strives to, to live a godly life and, and be right in God's eyes and, and serve him fully in righteousness? We're not perfect, but as we recognize those things, we, we repent uh, in humility and we turn from those things. But, but, but how are we doing as, as heads of our families? It's interesting as we, as we think about that, uh, that as, as the husband uh, lives in truth, humility, and righteousness, uh, these things are what cause families to ride prosperously don't they? I'm not talking about being millionaires, but, but it causes the family unit to ride prosperously as, as that husband leads in that way. 
humility, truth, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you, back to, I'm sorry, back to Psalm 44, uh, and your right hand shall teach you awesome things. I, I like uh, the way this is, is, is rendered uh, in, a, I can't remember if it was Spurgeon's or, or a, a commentary. I think it was Spurgeon's, but it, it sounds a little strange when, when, to read that and say, well, your right hand will teach you awesome things. Well, what, what, you, what can you teach me today, right hand? It seems kind of odd. But, but, but what, it's, what it's getting at is Jesus needs no guide but his own right hand, no teacher but his own might. He is, he is God. He is the one who is the truth uh, in, in going forward. And, and his right hand is awesome and powerful. It is righteousness along with the direction of, of what he wants to do. Verse 5, we come back to Revelation 19. We'll read verse 5 and then go back to right, uh, Revelation 19. Your arrows, speaking of Jesus Christ, this coming king, your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people's fall under you. We know, we know as we uh, go through Pentecost and head towards the Feast of Trumpets, we know the, the, the plan of, of how that's, that's going to come about, and we come back to Revelation 19. Revelation 19, verse 15, Revelation 19, 15, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and that with it he should strike the nations. You know when Jesus Christ strikes the nations, He's not going to have a machine gun, and I'm just going to, you know, see whom I can hit. Oh, I missed that guy over there. I'm going to miss him over here. Jesus Christ doesn't work that way. This, this is the God of the universe who, when he comes in divine wrath to do what he's going to do, he strikes with a sharp sword, and he strikes in the exact place that needs to be struck to cause the death. He strikes at the heart. As, as, we, as we read Revelation 19, we, we see the, the, the awesome total defeat that takes place when, when he decides to strike. Let's continue. That with, with it he, he should strike the nations. He, Jesus Christ himself, will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. As we look down and read uh, what, what happens to the armies... Uh, and, and how they were destroyed. We look at verse 21, and the rest were killed with the sword which pro proceeded out of the mouth of him. It wasn't a near miss. I clipped this guy over here. Uh, I clipped him here. Oh, there he is. He's, he's running off. I got to take him out. It doesn't work that way with Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ and the wrath of God strikes, he will defeat them utterly. He strikes right at the heart. We've come through the days of unleavened bread. Uh, We've, we've asked God, as, as we do all year long, day in and day out, God, uh, with your word, open us up. Cut in to, between marrow and bone and get to the heart. You discern the heart. I want to see the heart. I want, I want to see the evil that could be there, the sin that's there. I, I want you to cut to that in your gentleness and in your mercy. But God, open that to me so that I can see that and turn to you. Because the sin that is in me is an enemy of you. It is of Satan the devil. Every, everything that is of sin is of the evil one, is of the world. I want that out. I deeply desire that to be out. You are the great, the great king that can, can open that and reveal that to us. 
I open my heart to you. Let, uh, do that for me. It works, it works the same with sin. Jesus Christ, back to Psalm 44, his arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies and the people fall under him. Okay, now as we're still talking about the king here, uh, glory to this great king. Verse 6 of, of Psalm 45, verse 6 gives us clarity about the, the reality that this being, that about whom is being spoken here, is Jesus Christ. It, it, it has to be. It can be no other being. Look at verse 6. Your throne, O God, so he's been talking about this individual, this, this almighty one, this king to, to come and, and ride. Your throne, he calls this, this person God, is forever and ever. And Jesus Christ is, his throne has been forever and ever. He, he, he goes back to eternity with God the Father, and he goes into eternity for, forever. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness, here it is, righteousness again, is the scepter of your kingdom. It's, it's what you rule with. You rule with righteousness. You love righteousness and you hate wickedness. A, a critical factor of, of one of the reasons why we love this king whom we serve. Because there's no, there's no in-between. It's like, oh, I'm kind of lukewarm here. It's not, not a real big deal, this and that. Uh, but but he, he loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. Again, those of us who are in the husband role. As, as our families look to us, do they see uh, a, a leader, a father, who does truly take in and, and love righteousness and, and hates wickedness? Now, here's the statement in verse 7 that, that gives us clarity that this is speaking of Jesus Christ. Therefore, God, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. From where is this also discussed. That gives us the answer. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you, capitalized, with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Keep your finger there. Let's go to Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1 that talks about the, the role of Jesus Christ, that, that he has who he, who he is and who he was and who he will be, and then going forward as he as uh, the author of Hebrews contrasts Jesus Christ with the angels, he says in Hebrews 1 verse 8, here, here's, that, here's that passage uh, that is, is quoted in Psalm 45. But to the Son, speaking of Jesus Christ, this is what God the Father says. But to the Son, he says, and there it is, your throne, O God, Jesus Christ is God. You know, we heard Mr. Mr. Walker's message uh, here a while back on the, the divinity, the preexistence of, of Jesus Christ. He is God. They're, they're, your throne, O God, Jesus is God. Your throne is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord... The sun in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They'll perish, but you remain. You are the same and your years will not fail. This, this is speaking about the sun. This is speaking about the sun here in Psalm 45. You know, I was thinking as I was driving down uh, from the first service, I was just thinking about this. You know, as, as Christ would have been working with the early New Testament church before a lot of these 
these New Testament scriptures were being written, and, and even thinking of Timothy, Timothy, that, that from a young age you have known the scriptures, you've known them, you, you are, are grounded in the word of God. The scriptures about the return of Jesus Christ and, and who he would be, the great king, where, where would he have found those? It would be in Psalm 45. Uh, that one of the places that is a key scripture for, for the plan of God, for the return of Jesus Christ. They didn't have Revelation 19. We've got Revelation, we've got all of Revelation that, that didn't come out in, until the 90s. They, they had, the, they had the, the, the Old Testament. And from that, though, the Old Testament is rich with, with this king who is coming to marry his bride in his return. So now let's go back to uh, Psalm 45 as we reflect a bit more on uh, the, the speaking to this, this great being. This gets uh, more into the, the adoration now of the bride that, that is looking to the bridegroom. And like I say, it's, it's kind of weird for me being a guy to try to kind of put my mind into the thing of being a, a bride and and adoring uh, the groom. But one of the things that, that uh, what, what I try to do is as I step back and reflect, okay, I, I know the joy of what it is to look forward to a marriage as, as a husband and, and as a person in the body of Christ who is going to, who submits itself to this, this great being that is coming as the husband to lead the church, I can grasp that. Uh, from, from that perspective. I, I think in some respects it's, it's easier for, for the, the woman to, to look at it from the standpoint of, of a bride to marry a husband as well as seeing our role in the church as, as marrying the, the bridegroom. But, but notice again the attention and the, the deep adoration of all of the attributes of this, of this great king. Verse 8, all your garments, everything that you wear, uh, every aspect, from every angle, as uh, they view the king, this, this bridegroom, all your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia, out of the ivory places by which they have made you glad. King's daughters are, are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. So there is an entourage that is, is coming along with this incredible being that is, is great in all aspects of his splendor. Uh, again, who is filled with truth, humility, and righteousness, the mighty one. So, so the, the bride uh, has been reflecting on this king. I ask us, as, as, as we step back, how much, how much time, or, or when, when was the last time uh, that we did that? Are we, are we striving to do that regularly, to say, I'm going to step back from things. I'm going to reflect on the things that the psalmist says that our heart should just be pouring forth out of in, in a good matter that, upon which we should be focusing as we're living this life. Uh, it's, it's, again, the perspective thing that it gives us in doing so. So we see the switch now. He switches from the, the bride, uh, the bridegroom, and talks now directly to the bride. As we mentioned before, you and I are the bride. We're the bride. Here's what he says to us. Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. 
Boy, that's a, a lesson for all of us. How much time am I spending listening? As, as the daughter, as, as part of the church that is the bride to marry this, this great being at, at this time that, that's ahead. Listen, O daughter, and incline your ear. Forget your own people also in your father's house. What, what's he meaning by that? What's the New Testament parallel for that statement there? That Christ uh, could say what he said in the New Testament. Forget your own people also and your father's house. He who loves mother, daughter more than, than me uh, is not worthy of me. It's that kind of thing, isn't it? It's, it's the, the individual, as, as we see our lives, the daughter that, uh, that is looking to, to marry the bridegroom, this being that is our life, this being that is truth and righteousness, full of splendor, that is going to make us co-inheritors with him for all eternity. He says, this is your focus. This is where we must keep our mind fixed. This is to what we're looking forward to as we reflect on his majesty and his greatness and his righteousness that we will be a part of for eternity. That's, that's what is critical. It's not saying that we need to cast off and forget our families, no. But in, in comparison, as we, as we see what's truly important in life, this is upon what I must focus if I am to be going in the right direction. This next verse, in verse 11, is something that uh, I found interesting in counseling with people over the years. Brethren that have made huge mistakes in their lives, have, have made turns and, and they're coming back to the faith, that have battled things in their lives and have these deep scars, things of which they carry shame and tremendous guilt as, as they're going forward, uh, sometimes really, really battle uh, this, with this next area. And, and again, this... This thing of being grounded in God's word, of, of studying God's word and reading God's word deeply brings out an attitude and a mindset that is not an attitude of vanity. It is an attitude that, that God wants us to have, that Jesus Christ wants us to have. Let's read it. Uh, verse 11, so the king will greatly desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Worship him. When we think about that, think about that as a human being. The Lord, Jesus Christ, greatly desires our beauty. I, beauty, beauty. What, what beauty do I have in terms of spiritual beauty? I, I've, I've done this. I've messed up here. I struggle here. I battle here. In fact, I'm nothing. Well, again, we, we, we recognize that we are vapor. We're dust. We're, we're here and we're gone. But we must realize as well that that Satan is, is working at us saying, yeah, you really are a bunch of junk and you don't have anything to offer. Even with God, yeah, God's working with you a little bit, maybe, you know, you got some things going on here and there, but really deep down inside, you're a failure. And, and realize that because look at your life. You struggle here, you struggle with this. Remember when you really messed this up and how this impacted these, these numbers of people and, and, and how you see day in and day out the, the, the consequences of that action as, as you see people still maybe suffer because of this or that. You're nothing. You're, you're, you're dirt and you're ugly spiritually. That, that's what Satan wants us to, to, 
to dwell in. And, and there is some catharsis in that, that some, some battle with that, even in the church. And it's been interesting counseling with folks over the years to, to strive to help them to, to go to God's word and see that God does not view us that way. He does not view us that way. As we've said many times, he sees and Jesus Christ see, they see themselves living in us uh, through, through the Spirit. They, they see us clothed in, in, in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. They, the King, Jesus Christ, greatly desires the church's beauty. He greatly desires that and, and eagerly anticipates that marriage. Because he is your Lord, worship him. There is such admiration that we have of this perfect being that is, is going to marry us that we worship and we serve him and, and we do so gladly. And the daughter of Tyre, verse 12, will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. The, the glorified bride at the, at, the, at the return of Christ and that, that wedding that's going to take place, the royal daughter is, is all glorious. This is a regal royal wedding of the king and the church the bridegroom in the church. Her clothing is woven with gold, so she shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing they shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. They, they shall come into the house of God. Uh, again, I think just a, a beautiful psalm talking about the whole plan of God, talking about what is in store for us. This uh, little old psalm, uh, nestled uh, in the many psalms of, uh, of the book of Psalms. Try to envision this. Uh, again, it's a bit more challenging uh, for men in, in this case to some degree than, than for women, but, but this is how our, our king is going to receive us at his return. This is another way of describing Revelation 19, 7 through 9. As we mentioned earlier, well, let's turn there. As we mentioned earlier, they didn't, they didn't have this. Timothy didn't have this passage in, in Revelation. We have, we have both now. But I, I think he would have drawn, as, as Paul did, uh, looking forward, as, as even John did, as he reflected on all this. The, we, we have all of this material now uh, upon which to draw as we look forward to, to the future. Uh, Revelation 19, verse 7. Revelation 19, verse 7. There, let us be glad and rejoice. This is speaking of Psalm 45. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. When that finally comes, wow, what, what uh, an event that will be. It's, uh, as the Greek mentions here, it could be it's, it's on the point of coming, or it's at the point of coming to pass as, as uh, this is being uh, discussed here. It's about to come here. Here it, here it comes, he says. And, and then he comes in verse 8. So, and to her it was granted to the bride to be arrayed in fine linen. This is, this is you and I, clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. He said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to this marriage supper, uh, this marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are, the, these are the true sayings of God. These are the true sayings. This is the reality that, of, of what's coming to pass. 
Two final passages today. This first one is in 2 Corinthians 11. As we come out of the Days of Unleavened Bread, as we reflect again upon the meaning of Passover and what that means in our everyday life, the meaning of the Days of Unleavened Bread and what that means to our everyday lives, uh, we see the, the, the cleansing that, that God has done for us through the, the sacrifice of Christ, through the washing of the water of the Word. As we, as we reflect on all that and as we see God's Spirit working, working in us, Paul makes this statement. We know also, as, as Scripture says, as, as we have been cleansed, we are to, to cleanse ourselves. We have our part to play in that as we, as we live our lives, as, as was mentioned in the sermonette today. Our role to detect that and, and continue to cleanse ourselves of, of these things as well. But 2 Corinthians 11, verse 1, 2 Corinthians 11 Verse 1, he makes the statement about this, this great king and this, this great uh, event that's going to take place and how Paul viewed the church. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed, you do bear with me. Verse 2, he says, for I am jealous. I am, there is a godly jealousy here uh, for you. He, as, as the one who uh, worked with the Corinthians and, and deeply desired for them to stay on the right path, uh, he says, I, I am jealous with you, with God, for you, with godly jealousy. jealousy. I, for I have betrothed you to one husband. He saw the, the bride. He saw the bride that, that Christ adored and, and was being prepared for him, uh, for him, for Jesus Christ. I betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Jesus Christ. Paul wanted the people there to, to live their lives and, and if they were to die before Christ uh, returned, that they would have lived their lives and finished that race to where that they would be presented as a chaste virgin to Jesus Christ. We, as, as the ministry, deeply desire that for, for our, the congregations that we serve. We, who are part of the body of Christ, we are a singular body of Christ, we deeply desire for the body of Christ to be presented as, as a chaste virgin to Jesus Christ. That's what's on our mind. This is what this is all about, is, is, to, is to be preparing for that, to be looking for that, and to live our lives based on that, to be at, at that event when that occurs. Let's turn finally back to Psalm 45. As I mentioned, uh, Psalm 45, just, just one little psalm in God's word, but a psalm that gives the awesome plan of our Father in heaven, talks about his love for us. It is his great pleasure, as we know, to, to give us the kingdom. And it talks about the love, the, the might, the majesty, the power, the splendor and beauty of this great being called Jesus Christ, the king who greatly desires his bride. He greatly desires us. That's how he views us. That's the value he places on you and me. That's a glimpse of how priceless this invitation is that he's giving us now. We, we, we gain that perspective and we gain that, that, and experience that comfort when we give attention to reading. We just, we, again, we, we just read one, one psalm today. But as we give attention to that and we step back and we dwell on it and we think on it, we, we begin to grasp that greater 
depth of what's going on in this world as we really give attention to the breathed words of our Creator. It yields an outlook. It, 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 it yields an outcome of a, of a state of mind as we go forward facing whatever trial we're going to face. We're, we're facing many trials right now in the church. We, you know, just thinking of, of, of the Erion family, thinking of the Ross family in Sherman, the trials that they're facing. Uh, can, you know, well, those many of you have been in that situation, but you know, I, I think of, of parents who are, are dealing with this long-term illness of their daughter. We sent the prayer request. It, it, it's, it's ongoing. And the parents who deeply love their daughter and would deeply desire to see God intervene for, for this child and, and to turn that around, uh, that, that hasn't happened. That hasn't happened. And, and, but yet at the same time, to step back and have perspective of, of Jesus Christ's love for, for us as a church, as a, or Jesus Christ's love of, of all humanity, Jesus Christ's love for the Erion girl, Jesus Christ's love to, to give all that opportunity to be presented before him in this way. Uh, it gives that outlook, that state of mind, to help us go forward facing whatever trial or whatever hardship our king and groom assured us that we'll face, because we're going to face them. We're going to face them. They are there. At the beginning, the psalmist said, my heart is overflowing with this matter. It's overflowing with this good matter, this, this good theme. And he said, I've got, to, I've got to talk about it. Is this matter, our lives, our, uh, what, what is ahead of us, what this is all about, is, is that overflowing in our lives? Is, is that what drives everything that we, that we do? When we have that outlook, here's the conclusion to which we come. We come to the same conclusion of the psalmist. Verse 17, I will make your name, the psalmist says, of, of the name of Jesus Christ, this king, the bridegroom, uh, who desires his, his bride. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. Brethren, let's, let's reflect on that. Reflect on that. Think deeply on that. Praise this great being that we serve. This great being who loves us and is bringing us to that. Uh, to to not only be a part of his family, but to serve in his family, to serve all of humanity. Boy, we are blessed. This is priceless. This is priceless. Let's give attention to the reading of word, of the word that will guide us and direct us as we go forward.